0: Well, good morning. Welcome again to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace, although I will not be teaching this morning. Scott Culberth, one of our elders, is going to be uh, taking our next section of a place in the family, talking about children, and then I'm going to be following up on that next week, correcting all the mistakes. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Good stuffs today, so go ahead and get it today while you can. Uh, Before we pray this morning for mothers, which is our prayer focus, I just want to ask you to pay attention to uh, the proposed amendment from last Sunday. It's in the middle of your announcement section in the bulletin. Uh, You'll have three options. Members will have three options next week. Um, This is an important... Uh, Time for us as we gather next Sunday uh, and consider this amendment that has many biblical, cultural, and even legal implications. So please be much in prayer this week, and if you have any questions about it, please see one of the elders this week. That third option, if you disagree, is uh, connected with also a commitment to speak with one of the elders. So please, uh, if you have any questions, let's do that um, this week. Uh, It's time to turn our attention to our prayer focus, which for today is mothers. I know that this is a difficult day for many of you uh, for any number of reasons. Uh, Some of you lost mothers this week, uh, this year, I'm sorry, uh, this past year. Uh, Others of you uh, are... Grieving a relationship that went to rise somewhere along the way, or maybe you never even knew your mother. Some of you would like to be a mother, but God has not yet allowed you to conceive or even provided a husband for you. It's a difficult day for a lot of people and a lot of reasons, for a lot of different reasons. We acknowledge that, and our hearts are with you, hurt with you, and trust God with you. On this day, in the best of times, being a mother is not easy. In the best of circumstances, being a mother is not easy. I mean, you have so many hopes and dreams for your children, and you have no idea in the economic and cultural and spiritual climate of the day if those dreams will be realized or not. I mean, you also dream of your children obeying you the first time you say something and trying not to be disgusted when daddy walks in, and it it happens immediately, you know, when dad says it. You get the, the joy of being with him all day, and then everything changes the minute dad walks in. But you know, that's okay. That's the way God designed it. You love him, and you love your children anyway. If God has called you to be a mother, just know it is a calling. I mean, you have the painful Privilege that is filled with beautiful agony to mold hearts, teach manners, shape lives, choose your child's spouse. Okay, well, not that last one. (laughs) But your blessing is great and your burden is enormous. You're not called to bear this burden alone, though. God has called all of us, as you're going to hear from Scott this morning, to participate in appropriate and biblical ways. We're all responsible for the children of our church, even if it's simply praying for them. And really, that's sort of an oxymoron, simply praying. There's nothing simple about talking to the God of the universe on behalf of someone that you care deeply for. So this morning, we want to pray for our mothers. And as is our custom, the last few years, and it's a beautiful tradition. We're going to ask all the mothers to remain seated and everyone else to stand, if you would. And if it's possible for you to just lay your hand on a mother close by, we are going to be praying for them. We are very grateful, moms, for how much you have meant to us. Let's pray. And as I conclude, I will pray also for our uh, offering. Our Father, <clears throat> your design is marvelous. As we talked about last week, your design for man and woman to become one flesh. And Father, you have designed that. Couples, husbands, and wives, multiply. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And where would we be without mothers? We're so grateful for the women that you have called to care for us in ways that no one else cares for us. Lord, for those who... uh, have difficulty on this day because it didn't work according to plan. We acknowledge this is a broken world, a fallen world, and we make mistakes. We all make mistakes, and sometimes our mistakes are grievous. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that is in Christ. We thank you for the ways that you have called the mothers here at Grace Community Church to raise their children and the ways in which they are responding to your call. We ask your great blessings on them. We ask that you would heal where there is hurt. You would encourage where there is exhaustion. And Lord, that you would bless and that you would bring many of our children. Lord, we would be so bold as to ask that you would bring all of our children into the kingdom walking with Jesus. So, Lord, we're thankful for our mothers. We're thankful for your design. And we bless you even as we bless those who have been called to be moms. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you have given us. And we ask that in this uh, time of our service where we worship you with our tithes and our offerings, that our hearts would be full and that we would give generously with glad hearts. In Christ's name, amen.
1: I'm not much a transition, so uh, let's just jump right in, all right? Do you believe that God could have created things any way he wanted? It's not a rhetorical question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, have you ever thought of what if God made the sky red instead of blue? I've not got a Carolina joke in there, by the way. Um, What about, why not make bunny rabbits roar like lions? No, surely there's something like that you've wondered. How about this one, which I began to wonder about 14 years ago when our first child, Caitlin, was born. Why didn't God make pregnancy result in a walking, talking, able-to-take-care-of-themselves person. I mean, he created the first people like that, right? Why not just go to the hospital, be placed under general anesthesia, have a rib extracted, wake up and go home a day or two later with a fully functional, able-to-contribute-to-society human being? Because I wonder about things like that. My name is Scott Colbreth, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace Community. I'm probably better known as Keisha's husband. (laughs) Uh, She and I began attending about 15 years ago, now, back when the church was meeting over at the middle school. Since then, all three of our children were born, dedicated, and baptized here. In fact, it was 14 years ago today, on Mother's Day, that Caitlin was dedicated. As a one-month-old. Yeah, she's sinking down in the chair over there. So, (laughs) Yeah. As a one-month-old here in this family. God has allowed us to enjoy being part of this family in many ways over the years. From leading music on Sunday mornings to participating and leading multiple home groups, multiple home groups, I've, I've lost count teaching Sunday school, serving as deacon, Keisha coming on to staff as children's ministry coordinator, and I, in more recent years, serving you in the role of elder. Along the way, along the way there have been many meals shared, uh, trips taken, fish caught, um, camping trips had, birthdays celebrated, hardships shared, I'm thankful to be in lockstep with you, my family, my brothers and sisters for so many years now. And I feel like as God adds to your nuclear families that He is adding to mine and Keisha's, uh many little nephews and nieces, it's a real joy being part of this family that God has established. Now, back to my somewhat ludicrous question. Notwithstanding the potential physical complications of birth resulting in adults rather than infants, aren't you glad that God did it exactly the way he did? Little babies are wonderful, aren't they? I mean, who wouldn't welcome sleepless nights cleaning up vomit and poopy? And then they start getting bigger and are able to move around and get into things and learn to throw temper tantrums and force us to learn a whole new language because they can't simply tell us their needs yet, or at least not in English. And who wouldn't welcome the opportunity to pack half the house when you need to go down the street for a few hours (laughs) and figuring out how forceful, I mean creative you should be when they won't eat their food or take their medicine. Aren't kids great? Uh, Wondering whether I might find some useful or famous thoughts that others have had concerning children, I consulted Google and found a few. Boy, a noise with dirt on it. (laughs) Sounds about right. A little girl is sugar and spice and everything nice, especially when she's taking a nap. (laughs) You can learn many things from children. How much patience you have, for instance. Having a two-year-old, this is my favorite, is like having a blender that you don't have the top for. (laughs) Amen? Anybody? Before I got married... I had six theories about raising children. Now I have six children and no theories. (laughs) While we try to teach our children all about life, our children teach us what life is all about. I love these little people, and it is not a slight thing when they, who are so fresh from God, love us. There's nothing that can help you understand your beliefs more than trying to explain them to an inquisitive child. It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. This, and this last one, just think about who said this. Dwight Moody. It's an amazing, uh, amazing thought. If I could relive my life I would devote my entire ministry to reaching children for God. That's, that's profound. Just think though, you know, I pose this question of why not adults instead of children coming out initially? Just think though what the world would be like without children. This would be a completely different kind of planet, would it not? And this family would be nothing like the beautiful thing we know it to be without God making this human experience include these things called children. And by having them come into the world as small, helpless, and needy. And as with all things that God has done, there is a deep purpose and meaning working just behind the scenes when it comes to these little ones' place in our family. I'd like to point out at least three things that we're going to focus on today um, from the scripture. Children are examples to us. Maturing Christians, hopefully that's all of us in here, need children. And this, uh, this series is going to be a two-part series. Brad's going to go into this third point a little deeper next week. Children need mature Christians. Our first text this morning is from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. If you would, please stand as I read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let's pray. Lord, we do truly thank you for placing children in our midst. They are a blessing. As your word says that they are. Help us to, since you lifted this aspect of a child uh, up, up to us as an example, help us not to skim over it, but help us to meditate on why you are lifting this child up as an example to us, and I pray that by your spirit this morning you will teach us everything you want us to know about it. Asking ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, children are an, an example to us. And here in Matthew 18, we see that the place of children, or we see what the place of children should be among us, what our correct view of them should be. And we see the place of children in the kingdom of God, his view of them. And here in Matthew 18, it's out, these things are outlined, while in Mark 9, um, it's, which is the parallel account of this story here, Mark 9 says that the disciples were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. So this, this lifting up of the child, as an example, was in response to this conversation about who is the greatest. And like I said in Mark 9, it may indicate that they were actually arguing about it. So what is Jesus talking about then when he says we're to become like one of these? I think he gives us insight in the scripture that follows this conversation. But first of all, I want to make sure that we clearly zero in on this child that Jesus put in the midst of them. Again, from Mark 9, it says that Jesus took the child in his arms. So it must have been a very little child. Now, if I were to survey 100 Americans and have them give me the first age that popped into their mind when they heard the word child, I'm sure that I would get ages anywhere from infancy on up to about 26 years old. Now, before anybody gets upset, let me remind you, I'm just saying what some Americans might say about some people. am not saying there's anyone in here that fits that category. 26-year-old children, that is. And if we were to ask them to rate the relative status or importance of children in our society, do you think that children would be thought of to be very important, only somewhat important, or not important at all? I think overall it would be pretty clear that children have a fairly high status in our society, wouldn't you agree? But it just was not so in the culture in which the disciples were hearing this teaching from Jesus. The fact that Jesus was holding up a child as an example, if I understand my conversation with Brad earlier in the week uh, properly, this was as radical as Jesus taking the job of the lowliest servant and washing the disciples' feet when he was supposed to be a king. Or as radical as when he elevated the status of women through acts of kindness, through healing, through receiving gifts from them in public, through laying his hands on women in public, and sometimes even interacting with them in the synagogues. Now, I found this statement on the internet, but believe I've heard it before, so I felt it was likely accurate and safe to uh, share, to highlight this point. In biblical times, there were Jewish rabbis who prayed every day, I thank thee, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. And if culturally that's any indication of how women were thought of, it's definitely not a stretch to think at all or a stretch at all to think that children were not seen as terribly important or noteworthy in that society. And remember, as Mark indicates by saying that Jesus picked the child up in his arms, this was a very little person, which the Greek here seems to support. The word for child used here is, I'm going to spell it for you in English, P-A-I-D-I-O-N, P-A-D-I-O-N paedion, something like this, which indicates a little or young child or maybe even an infant. So with these two facts clearly in our minds, that this was a very small child and that it was radical that a Jewish rabbi was holding up a child to teach a lesson, let's look at these next three sections of Scripture. There's two parables and one direct instruction here that follows Jesus' radical statement that his disciples... And by extension, we must become like the child in his arms. Verses 12 through 14, if you have your Bibles, I didn't put it on the slides here. Um, this is the uh, parable of the lost sheep. Everybody remembers that Jesus uh, talked about the shepherd who left the 99 to go in search of the one, right, that was lost. How is childlikeness seen here? Recognize you may be lost. This is tough sometimes to see any other way than retrospectively. Of course, you know, you don't really realize it until you were found, right, sometimes. But the fact remains that a child can be stubborn like a sheep and end up lost because they are running away from protection. Also, a child can simply be unwise, not aware that they have wandered away. It's all clear wandering the halls, you know. Sarah was right around the corner this morning. Um, And whether through stubbornness or just lack of wisdom, the sheep or the child is in need of rescue. Is Jesus thus asking to go get ourselves lost and into trouble? Uh, Of course not. But he is at least saying two things. One, you don't have the tools, the strength or the wisdom to find your own way to the flock. He must rescue you. And two. And this one is great. If you hear his voice. It means you are his. Hear that again. If you aren't sure if you're found. But you hear Jesus calling you. that means you're his. Be a child and. And just run to him when you hear his voice. Just like the kid who, whose parent walks through the door after a day at work. And they hear that voice, I'm home. What happens? Kid runs with joy to meet the parent. Humble yourself and respond to his voice. In verses fifteen through twenty, uh, this is where Jesus instruction uh, is on how to deal with offenses between believers is is uh, shared and I would say believers here I, w- I would like to substitute between family members okay when when there are offenses that occur now. I know I'm reaching a bit here but perhaps there is an example of childlikeness on display here being willing to say that someone say to someone else that they hurt you with the goal of winning them back seems to me something that kids do a little better than adults now I fully recognize that this typically typically doesn't happen in a quiet orderly fashion with kids Usually, there are two, stable, two stages. One, a passionate, you hurt me, along with maybe hurting back. And then, though it can seem really slow to us sometimes as parents, we see a making up. And everyone's having fun again and laughing. Can you, like a child, admit to someone they hurt you, perhaps very deeply? And then move as quickly as a kid can to accepting them back if they listen. I'd encourage you to meditate on verse 15 um, in your in your uh, next quiet time. And I know that if you're deeply hurt, that the temptation will be to focus on what Jesus is saying to the other person. They indeed must listen and confess the wrong. But what is your attitude in bringing the offense to their attention? Are you wanting to hurt them back or to win them back? Keep in mind the context here is believer to believer, family member to family member. This is someone who has been redeemed by Christ and with whom you will spend eternity. Shouldn't your approach, even when you're deeply hurting, be to win them back? If you struggle with this idea, let's look at the the next section. In verses 21 through 35, here's the short version of the parable. There was this guy that was forgiven a huge debt. Uh, The New Living Translation says that it was millions of dollars. He owed this debt to a king who forgave him his debt. And then went out from there and did not forgive a a very small debt, which was... According to New Living Translation, comparison, in comparison to millions, this was a few thousand dollars. He did not forgive that debt that was owed to him. In fact, he had the guy thrown into prison. Do I incorrectly observe that kids are way better forgivers sometimes than adults? But what's the bonding tie here? Can we go back to the uh, slide, uh, the scripture? And let's look at verse 4 real quickly. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, one commentator says that, The child is held up as an ideal not of innocence, purity, or of faith, but of humility and unconcern for social status. Jesus advocates humility of mind, not childishness of thought. With such humility comes childlike trust End quote. So when you have a moment to look at these three sections of scriptures that we just went over, the lost sheep, the instruction about forgiving or how to deal with offenses between believers and the parable of the unforgiving um, unforgiving guy. Um, I think you'll see how humility is highlighted in each instance the humble state of the sheep with few if any abilities the humility of the offended believer who desires to win back a brother and the lack of humility in the servant who had a huge debt forgiven but then was unwilling to forgive a small debt owed to him There's another place in scripture where a small child's characteristics are lifted up as a clear example to us. That's in Psalm 131. And here again we see humility as a theme. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Like a child that is weaned, who is becoming old enough, that is mature enough to understand that his or her perceived needs are may not necessarily need to be met right now, but can and will be met in time. Like the weaned child who is still young, childlike enough, not not to concern themselves with the many what-ifs of life that can lead to worry, doubt, fear, which in the extremes can lead either to depression on one hand or to overconfidence and self-reliance. On the other. We adults are called to quiet our souls and take a sober, lowly, humble view of ourselves. And though both of the extremes that I just outlined there, depression or self reliance, although they're problematic for us and create all kinds of heartache. I don't think these facts by themselves provide enough reason for us to muster a willingness to to achieve this weaned childlikeness. I do believe though that the heart of the matter is summed up here in verse three. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. The real core issue is that our hope in the Lord is is compromised when pride creeps in. When our eyes betray to others that we think we're all that and a bag of chips. But before you focus on how really difficult achieving this elusive balance of old enough to not be a whiny little baby, but still young enough to realize your utter dependence on your mother, it should be pointed out that this psalm is a song of ascents, or they call it of of degrees or of steps. Many scholars believe that these psalms were sung by worshipers as they ascended the road to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was up in in geography, right? Topography, I should say. Jerusalem was on a high place. As the pilgrims... um, went to the festivals year in and year out, the Festival of Unleavened Bread or Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Or they may have been, these psalms may have been sung by the priests as they ascended the 15 steps to minister at the temple in Jerusalem. What I want to point out here is that these were periodic events that people repeated on a regular basis. And these approaches to Jerusalem and the temple provided reason to focus And to rejoice. Focus on the reason for the journey. To worship almighty God. Yahweh. Focus on the state of the mind and the heart before almighty God. Yahweh. Focus on his great provision. In your life. Even the widow with two mites understood this. And obeyed by giving back to Yahweh her provider. So there you are ascending the hill to Jerusalem. And as you continue in your travels, consciously reminding yourself and your companions of these things using these kinds of psalms, you find yourself beginning to rejoice in Almighty God. And this leads to one place, one state of mind and heart that is like that of the weaned child spoken of here. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this psalm, says, "Now a weaned child is entirely dependent upon its mother. It knows nothing about how it is to be fed. It cannot feed itself, and it must die if deprived of the care of the mother. But it rests quietly, free from even a trace of anxiety. I find that the Hebrew gives the idea of a child lying in its mother's bosom perfectly satisfied. Now, I'm not sure if these words lean you more to think that this state this, of being a weaned child is more or less achievable than you thought initially a moment ago. But I would point out a few things. One, this is, of course only possible in Jesus. Since the Father is completely pleased with the Son, the Son can be completely contented in the Father. And this level of contentment can be found in your hearts only if Jesus, the Son, resides in them. I should say only if your hearts reside in Jesus, much in the same way that a little child's identity is completely wrapped up in its parents. This contentment also did not just spontaneously descend upon the original singers of these psalms. Again, they engaged in periodic repeating of these words year in and year out during these gatherings, these journeys, for the purpose of worshiping Yahweh. And they served as a refreshing reminder. Humility, simplicity, dependence, trust, hope in Yahweh forevermore. These characteristics are Christ's, are they not? And they're promoted in us, God's elect, through the regular gathering of his people the church right here where together we sing in fellowship and draw near to worship. This is where we share our journey together toward him who called us to himself. This is where the process of making us like the little child, perhaps the little infant even that he picked up in his arms in Matthew 18. This is where this process is being worked out in us by Jesus himself, here, together with family. So children, I think, have a particularly interesting and terribly important place in the family, do they not? I've spoken primarily thus far of how how they are in our midst to provide a picture of what we are to become in Christ. I know it sounds kind of backwards, ironic even, I mean, aren't we supposed to show them the way to go? In preparing for this morning, I listened to part of an audiobook titled, How Children Raise Parents, by Dan Allender, hoping to obtain some useful quotes. Notice there are none in here, by the way. <laughs> it, and Friday evening, Landon was riding with me in the car and saw the title on the screen and as I and I listened to him as he did a double take and reread the title to himself slowly and if you know landon you just see his face here right how children raise parents initially perplexed he said what how is that even possible but then the possibilities began to form in his mind that would be awesome <laughs> I asked what he meant. Hey, Dad, go clean your room. (laughs) And he starts laughing. I said, is that what raising you boils down to? He thought a second. Well, I guess I'd have to cook for you. (laughs) And so he summed up all my skills, wisdom, and investment of multiple years from his perspective. See, I told you that kids and humility went together. So children are a picture to us, but they are so much more than that. God has provided them, or God has provided in them an opportunity, I'd even venture to say a calling, to some serious on-the-job training for adults. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, in helping to explain how the imperfect, partial things of now will pass away when the perfect, more complete things come. Paul pointed to an example of of a process that is very familiar to us, that of a child growing up. He says, when I was a child, I'm sure we know this one well, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a, a man, I gave up childish ways. And although Paul was using this process as an example to highlight another point, I'd like to use the statement to make a point not really related to to, uh, chapter 13 there. Children remind us that growth and development towards maturity is natural, it's necessary, it's a process. And although natural, it needs input from outside of themselves. It needs direction, guidance, nourishment, and so on. We look to them and are reminded that as children of God, we need to continue towards maturity every day. And when we provide that input, that direction and guidance, teaching to children, we ourselves are growing in maturity. We are being sanctified in that process. Which brings me to my second point. Maturing maturing Christians need children. Need may be a strong word here. But children are definitely helpful to our sanctification process. How are we being sanctified, you may ask? Though there could be a full sermon... On this point alone, let it suffice for now to make a brief correlation between serving children's needs and Christ serving our needs. Every, every once in a while, there's, uh, I'll, I'll make a scripture reference, say, like in home group, and I'll just make a little aside and say, this is a scripture uh, that you need to know where it comes from. You need to be able to have this reference like that. Obviously, we'd like to have that on the entire Bible, right? But there are those key passages that you should just, your mind should just know right where it is. This is one of them. Philippians 2. Christ did not account, or excuse me, Christ did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, that is to be held on to, right? But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Now, when any believer puts aside his own interests and considers others more significant than himself, he is becoming more like Jesus. Children give us frequent opportunities to set aside our own interests and desires, don't they? You fell asleep, or you just fell asleep, the crying starts. You just turned on the news. And the yelling and arguing starts. You just scheduled your first time away with your spouse in months. And had the babysitter all lined up. And the fever starts. You just sat down to a piping hot meal after a long day at work. The barrage of questions start. You've given instruction. And the disobedience starts. Starts. You just sat down on a Sunday morning at church after a terrible week and need rest and restoration for yourself. And the screen is flashing, just as it was earlier this morning. ITM assist needed. In all of these types of situations, you are being given an opportunity. Will you allow the spirit to quiet your soul? Much as a child lets their trusted parent aunt, uncle, or grandparent, calm and soothe them? And will you offer yourself to God in those moments to be used by him to minister to the little ones in this family, whether you're doing so as a parent, an aunt, or an uncle, or a grandparent in Christ? When I remember what's at stake here, It helps me remember, or excuse me, it helps me repent of my selfish inward focus on my own desires and comfort, and helps me to let go of any thought of my rights. At the end of the day, what's at stake is our children's souls. They are not merely battling immaturity and selfishness. Their problem is a sin problem, just like ours is. And we've been called to have the mind of Christ, who had our sin problem in clear focus in every teaching he gave and every action he took, especially that of going to the cross. Like I said, Brad is going to continue with this topic next week and further develop the next point, how children need mature Christians to help them deal with this sin problem through discipline, instruction, Structure, among other things, all of which ultimately point them to and lead them to Christ. But before we leave this current point, that maturing Christians need children, I want to make sure that the analogies that I'm drawing aren't taken too far. I love analogies. Brad calls me the king of analogies. So I want to make sure that we don't leave with just, you know, analogy only. It's They break down, right? Investing your time and energy into your children's physical, emotional, social, psychological needs, and so on is indeed of some value to your own sanctification process. But verse 4 of Matthew 18 reminds us that Jesus is considering any who believe in him as those who have already become like the little child he is holding. It's it's that belief in him is what gains anyone entry into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, I would encourage you not to forget that as you invest your time and energy in others, whether they are the actual little ones in our midst, or whether it is a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow little one in him, I encourage you to have, like Jesus did, a clear focus on the biggest problem facing us, our sin. And in this offering of yourself to others, it teaches them and reminds them that Jesus has paid the price for all sin. And you will find that you are being sanctified, being made more like Jesus as you humble yourself to give that offering. Now we will touch on this last point just a moment, or at least that's where the heading is on on the page. I'm I forgot what I have after it till I read it, of course. So we'll see how it applies. Children need mature Christians. I want I want us to, uh, or I want to encourage you to hear. Brad's teaching next week not forgetting the context that we set here today. That we have something very important to learn from children. Because it sets us up to provide them what they need from us. Humility of spirit that leads us to admit that we need Jesus to save us humility of spirit, and a lack of concern for social status that allows us to give ourselves to others freely after the example of Christ and experience sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And isn't that exactly what the children in our midst need from us? Christ himself working in and through us, guiding, teaching Disciplining, encouraging, structuring them, raising them in the training and instruction of the Lord. They don't need analogy. They don't need the latest research and study. All of that's of some value, but they need Christ. And it's Christ in you, Christ in us as family, that they need That's where they'll get it. That's where they'll get him. Right? And no matter if they are actual little ones. Or soon to be little ones that are maybe 80 years old. And still just becoming. uh, to Or just coming to a saving faith in Christ. That 80 year old is still a little one. In Jesus' family. And this desire and goal for the children that belong to us here at Grace, that God has given us, it leads us as a church to uh, provide a safe environment for them and to be raised in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is why we provide the children's ministry, and this is the end to which Keisha coordinates it. Furthermore, the elders are very interested at all times in the growth of all ministries. Uh, For instance, we're discussing a couple of items currently with respect to the growth of the children's ministry. One is additional classes prescribed for them near the end of their elementary years as they transition to youth age. These will be semester long or longer and build on the strong tradition of catechism-like classes that the Orthodox Church has provided to children throughout history. We're also discussing topics such as baptism and church membership as it relates to children and youth. And as we close today, Keisha's going to come and share for a moment and remind us about what and how that the uh, children's ministry here at Grace is all about. How these truths that we've been discussing here today play out as adults and kids are interacting week in and week out here at Grace.
2: Good morning. As my husband said, um, my name is Keisha Culbreth and I'm the Children's Ministry Director here. And this means that I oversee uh, the ministry to all the children we have here from infants up through fifth grade. Most of you knew that, but I just want to give you a snapshot today of exactly how that all plays out. When the children, some of them you see leave here, some of them you drop off before you even come in here. So I wanted to give you a little picture of how that plays out for the different age groups that we minister to here at Grace. So first of all, we have our infants and toddlers, which are beautiful little ones, and... Basically, in infant and toddler ministry, the foundation of what we're doing there is building relationships. We want to build relationships between these little ones and the adults that serve them. Um, infants and toddlers bond with their parents, with any caregiver they have that meets their uh, physical and emotional needs. And because adults are the ones who care for their needs, they start to develop a sense of trust um, through those relationships. Um, According to a psychologist, and I have no idea if he was a believer or not, but what he had to say was very interesting, um, Eric Erickson uh, says that infants who successfully learn to trust develop hope. And isn't that interesting in our context? Um, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, in the first two years of life, when your children are back there and you're thinking, well, they're just playing with toys in the nursery, and I hope, you know, Brian and Stephanie are listening, and all the other adults who are serving our little ones this morning, they're there doing so much more. They're building the, providing the building blocks, the foundational building blocks of trust and hope so that those relationships with Christ can begin even as early as infancy. Um, then we have our, our other two classes that we have our preschool rooms. We have a three-year-old room and a four- and five-year-old room, children that have not yet gone to kindergarten. Um, what we do there is we continue building relationships, obviously with loving adults tr- who we can trust, and then we start to introduce the concept of another person who loves them, but someone that they can't see, and that's God, their creator, um, who made them, and he loves them. And so they start to relate to God. They start to understand who he is because they hear stories in the Bible of how God relates to the people he created and how he loves them. They also start to, as they hear these stories, learn about themselves and learn about these people, and they say, wow, you know, these people are a lot like me. You know, they disobeyed God. A lot of them do things against God and hmm, I disobey my parents too. So I'm kind of like them and they start to learn about something called sin. We've introduced that exact word to them and what that means about their heart being unclean and how it separates them from God. So then they learn about Jesus and how God sent Jesus to come to the earth and to die in their place because when their sin separated them from God, they had no way of getting their hearts back to God by themselves. So God had to send his son to do that for them. And so they learn about forgiveness and how God forgives them. Then they do little activities. Once they do their Bible story, they have crafts and activities where they can apply this truth in a hands-on way, learn something else that helps them understand the Bible story. And then finally, they do lots of time playing. Okay, Well, playing might, we've got to kill time back here, you know, kids. Let's go play with the blocks or do whatever. But actually, play has very important value as well. Um, it teaches them to share. It teaches them to create, because we're made in the image of God, and we all have the ability to create, Um, and most importantly, it teaches them to be friends, which for some of them is very easy, and then at other times, we have trouble, you know, being friendly, (laughs) and so it teaches them about being friends and relating to other children. Then finally, we have our ministry to our elementary children. These are our kindergarten through fifth grade children, and primarily in kindergarten through fifth grade we're teaching about worship we're worshiping god just as we do in here we're worshiping through song through music um through prayer and we don't have offering back there per se but um our third through fifth graders are present in the service with you in corporate worship i don't most of you may notice children sitting around in here our third through fifth graders um participate in giving their offering in here um But primarily, uh, the children are in corporate worship because it allows them to see worship modeled for them. They see their parents um, worshiping God and praising God. They see us calling out to him in prayer and sharing the needs of the congregation. They learn that other people in the body are important, not just them, um, but that other people need prayer. And they learn to give back to God a portion of what he's given to them. And our kindergarten through second graders go through this process, but they do it in the back with their peers and with the leaders who lead them. They have a time of music and they have a time of prayer where they share prayer requests and they pray together, which is very beautiful to hear some of their sweet prayers. They love to pray for puppy dogs, and um, if one person prays for a puppy dog, then the next 10 pray for their puppy dog that died like four years ago and stuff like that. But we we can you know get them back on track and everything, um, but they're learning they're learning that it's safe to approach God and in fact God cares about every detail of our lives even our puppy dogs that you know pass away and everything so they participate in that now after worship after these children leave here and they all are sort of in the back together they participate in our curriculum which is called the Gospel Project. And the Gospel Project introduces them to a theme, okay? For example, in a couple of weeks, we will talk about talents. They'll have an idea of what a talent is, you know, and then they'll be introduced to what a talent means in this particular story, the parable of the talents. But they get introduced to it by a small group activity or a game, and then they gather back into a larger group of 15 to 25 children, depending on the different age groups. And that's where they're asked a big-picture question, okay? So, for example they're talking about the story of the talents, the big picture question for them to think about for the day is why does God give us abilities and gifts? Okay, they, they think about that, and they all, they're already thinking, you know, I'm going to know the answer, because that's real important to them. You know, i want to see if I can get it right before we even watch the video, right? And so then they watch the Bible story video, and they find the answer to, their, to the Bible story question. So maybe you had a thought on that. We'll see if you're right or not, okay? So the big picture answer is, in the Parable of the Talents video, is God gives us abilities and gifts to use for his glory. Were you right? Some of you were. If you were, just pat yourself on the back. Okay. Um, so they, they learn this concept, and then when they go back to their rooms, they do, Bible story, they do discussion about the Bible story. They look it up. We talk about the books of the Bible and the Old Testament versus the New Testament. We talk about covenant. We review all these things. And... Um, Finally, the, the best thing about the Gospel Project, the whole point of it is, there's a Christ connection with every story. So we have been, for three years now, I can't believe it's been that long, but in August we will finish the three-year chronological um, study through the Bible, and for, for you, that's from here to here, from earliest times. Everything's in order um, in time through history, and we've we've been on that journey for three years, and every story in the Bible points to Jesus. That's what the significance of this curriculum is, so it's very, it's a great curriculum, and the children really love it, um, but basically, my my greatest reward, even though I love the activities, I love just working with the kids. I love being in their presence. But the the most beautiful thing um, that I'm rewarded with is seeing the truth of Jesus' words that Scott brought out in Matthew 18, verse 3. Truly, I tell you, unless you change, one version says, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, if I could do this for you, I would love to show you videos and quotes. I come and tell them at staff meetings guess what happened this week, you know, or I have to tell Myra and Neil, like, pretty much every week, you know, what Anthony said back there, because it's like he could just preach a whole sermon, you know. And I come to them, and I would love to show, I could spend an hour just telling you these questions that these children ask, or the way they process, and they really understand, many of them, what the gospel is, because it gives you, it's like you step back and realize, looking in a mirror, that you can't really look at unless you're in front of a child, you see, hey, they're actually hardwired (laughs) from birth. They're hardwired by God to have curiosity about their creator and to want to understand him. Um, They're excited about God, who God is, and they want to relate to him. And then they want to take what they know and they want to share it with their friends. And they love to do it back there. They want to share what they've learned and, you know, what's new to them. So, in fact, they're teaching me. They're teaching me about childlike faith and what that looks like. And in turn, my faith in Jesus and the work that he has done for me and in the lives of these children grows. I find myself, what happens is I leave, I come to church, I may come to church all harried and, you know, just thinking about the actual task I'm doing. And then in a moment, one question can come up. One little smiling face that speaks volumes will just voice something, and I'll go, okay, God, I get it. I remember why I'm back here. Um, I find myself looking to Jesus and seeing him all over again in a brand new light, and the children remind me that the best place I can be is in the lap of Jesus, trusting him. So what greater privilege can we have than teaching these little ones? And it truly is a great privilege. So thank you for allowing me to share.
1: We're going to take a moment to pray. So if you would bow your heads. Let you take a moment of silence as you meditate on this truth that we uh, bring up here a grace over and over and over the gospel cycle we uh, are justified before God through Jesus because of this humility that we 've been discussing this morning not not that we found it ourselves but that He gave it to us. And we're brought into his family. And we grow. And then we fall. And in very much the same way that we entered the family, we get back up through humility. Again, not that we have found it. But that he gave it to us. And we grow. And we stumble and fall. And so on. It comes through repentance at the beginning of and the entry into the family and it comes through repentance at each step of the way. And God has been so gracious to give us signposts along the way from His Word clearly but also around us through each other from the littlest ones to the most advanced in years. Take a moment and just praise God for His wonderful way of making it all work together for His glory and good. Father, may these moments in which we maybe not quite so easily bow before you as a weaned child with the mind and the heart of Christ in us. Pray that as we leave this place and as the world comes against this state of mind and heart that you would just be mighty in us and gracious to us helping us to, to act and behave to make choices and decisions out of this state that is really Christ in us And as we stumble and fall, as pride creeps in, I pray you would, by your Spirit, tap us on the shoulder and prick our hearts and remind us hey, just be like this child. Help us to give up our rights as if we had any to begin with, our own desires and our own interests and look to the interest of others knowing that we can't do it without you so we ask you to do this in us to continue the gospel cycle moment by moment in my life and in our lives, the lives of this family, Grace Community Church Become more like you every day. Please do this in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: Become like a child. Comforting words, Jim. So the next time when Ona says to you, Jim, stop acting like a child. You don't necessarily have to take that as a uh, as an insult. So we learn that a child, are characterized by humility and immaturity, so uh, they need guidance, reassurance. Where does that leave us? From First John. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And all God's people said, Go peace this week.